The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. This is Jesus speaking, and hear from him. Hear his words. Do something different today. Don't hear from me. Hear from Jesus. These are his words. He says, the eye is a lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, of you, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Uh, the first line that sticks out to me, maybe it's the first line that sticks out to you, is the invitation in verse 25 from Jesus, where he says, Do not be anxious about your life. In fact, he tells us this twice, again in verse 34. The invitation, as lovely and wonderful as that sounds, do not be anxious about your life, kind of feels discouraging as well. It's like someone coming up to me and saying, do not have curly hair. I, I let my hair grow a little bit longer than normal this summer. And when that happens, it gets really fuzzy and really curly. And I walked into a store one day, and while at the register, uh, the clerk looks at me and says, with no disrespect, he was seriously curious. He says, so do you do that on, on purpose, or does that happen naturally? <clears throat> and I said, been that, whole, been that way my whole life, buddy. <laughs> Been that way since I was born, and then I went home and shaved my head. Um, <laughs> seriously what I look like? For Jesus to say, do not be anxious about your life, might sound like an invitation born to fail. Great, do not be anxious about my life. What do I do with that? It's like telling me to change my DNA. Because when we face a multitude of struggle, when we face face challenges that are a result of our broken bodies and living in a broken world. We can't simply just go home and shave our head to make it better. And what Jesus does in this passage is he, he brings us through a process of seeing clearly God's care for us. Uh, not answers for how he changes our circumstances, but, but care for us in the midst of whatever struggle we're going through. And he does it in three important ways. He reveals us, he corrects us, and then he assures us of his care for us. Can we talk about those three things briefly? First, he reveals us. You see how he reveals our deep longings in our hearts? These words from Jesus are like a deep mirror into our soul. You kind of even feel it maybe as, as I even read the passage. You're starting to think about yourself. 
That's what it's meant to do. Jesus is holding up in a mirror and he's saying, I want, I want you to see what's deep inside of you, not just on the surface. Because a passage like this can't, can't help but go much deeper. We can't talk about the superficial struggles in our life. Jesus is wanting to go really deep. Uh, he wants to go into the areas of our life that, that we really think about all day long. And he uses this analogy, the, the eye and the lamp. A powerful analogy, the metaphor of the lamp. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. He's talking about the way that we see the world. He's talking about, more importantly, our desires. The things we truly long for, the things we want. And desire is like a lamp, he says. Think about a lamp. When our desires are good, the lamp is good. It illuminates the room. It brings warmth to a person. If a lamp is bad, it burns down the house. And that's what's happening. We have, we, I'm familiar with arson in our home. We've had a couple house fires. Not in my house, but growing up in my family. My brother would put a candle in the room, right, because he liked the smell of it. And they'd walk away, and we were displaced for over a month because the house like burnt down. This is what happens. The candle can be beautiful, and it can illuminate. And it can help us see things clearly, or it can burn down our house. Jesus is saying this. This is what happens with our desires. Our desires can lead us into a place of, of health and trust in God, or it can destroy our life. This is what desire does. And what Jesus is doing by telling us, do not be anxious about your life, he's inviting us to pay attention to the things we care about most. I've never wondered if I would have enough food to eat. I've never ever felt I wouldn't have enough food to eat. Even growing up in a household of nine people, I never wondered if I would be able to eat. I would never have enough, I never wondered if I'd ever have enough clothes to wear, even though I always wanted more and the styles change and you keep getting more. I never was afraid or anxious that I wouldn't have clothes. I have never been in danger of ending up homeless as a result of financial crisis. So why this passage? Why does Jesus talk about these things? Does it seem like it might not relate? Don't worry about what you'll eat, what you'll wear, or about your life. It seems like we don't worry about those, those things particularly too much in America at least. So what's the heart problem? Here's the heart problem, is that we wake up every day in danger of giving into the delusion of self-sufficiency. We wake up every single day in danger of the delusion that we have, that all that we need will come from us, that we have within ourselves everything we need to live the life that God has called us to live. We wake up looking for the good life. And we often think that the good life flows from accomplishing the plans that we set out for ourselves rather than realizing God's plans for us. The good life is not about our successes. It's about God's success in the world and in our life. The good life is not about our ability to control our circumstances, but resting in God's sovereign control over all of life. The good life is not about our reputation. It's about God's majesty being revealed in our life and through our lives to others around us. We often wake up each day wondering if the good life will come to us, and we get afraid because sometimes we are afraid that that good life won't come to us. Through comfort, possessions, accomplishments, health, and friendship, and worried and afraid that it's possible we're going to miss out on those things and we won't have the good life. But we should wake up, instead of desiring the good life, we wake up cautious of finding ourselves 
and finding our strength in our own self-sufficiency. Instead of saying, God, give me all of these things so that I can have the good life, we should say, God, help me not to depend on myself for the things that you wish to give to me. Have you ever stopped to think that you and I were not created to have to figure out what we would eat or wear today? I mean, think about this. We were created that we should never have to think for a moment where our food would come from because it would be provided by God. We would never have to wonder where we would live. We would never have to wonder if something bad would happen to us. These were foreign things. These were foreign things when God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were created. They lived in perfect peace with God and with creation and with one another. They had everything they needed. And they were never, there was never a moment where they didn't have what they need because they lacked nothing. And when Adam and Eve first sinned, do you remember the, what happened and the, the conversation that they had with God? God called out to them and they hid. And, and God asked them, why did you hide from me? And, he, and they say, we hid from you because we were afraid, because we were naked. And do you remember what he asks next? Who told you? This is really interesting. How do you know what nakedness is? This should be a foreign concept. You, existing in this moment, realizing for the first time there's something that you want that you don't have, is not how I created you to be. Some catastrophe must have happened in your heart for you to realize that you are naked. See, the, the, the cause of sin in our own brokenness goes much deeper than we think. It goes so deep. Even the acknowledgement of our need for things that we don't have is a result of the devastation that we are not as we ought to be with God. That we exist in a reality that is, that is not how God means for it to be. And it is tragic. The mere presence of our awareness of having need is evidence that somewhere along the way, something bad has happened. You may not be afraid of what you will eat or drink or wear, but consider what areas of life you are afraid of. Consider what areas of life you are worried and anxious and troubled. So much today gives us plenty of opportunity to be afraid. So much is communicated using fear. Consider politics. Do you see any fear in there? If you don't vote for me, all these horrible things will happen. If you vote for that person, think of how bad your life will be. If you don't vote at all, Consider the horrible things that will befall you. What about your own health and, and even medicine, your physical health? If you don't vaccinate, this horrible thing will happen. If you do vaccinate, this horrible thing for, will happen. If you don't eat organic, right? if you don't eat this, this horrible thing will happen. What about relationships? If you don't get married and have X amount of kids by this age, consider what horrible things will happen. So much is communicated by using fear. God uses our fears and our struggles to remind us of something ultimately important. Who's in control? It's not us. He uses our struggles. He doesn't deny them. He doesn't tell us to turn away from them and say, hey, don't even pre just pretend that those things don't exist. He says, I know that they exist. Your father knows that they exist. And he uses these struggles to remind us that there is a delusion that we have, that we are self-sufficient, that we can make it 
on our own. You see, we can invest in a healthy marriage and it can still fail. We can fill our house with air purifiers and essential oils and still get sick. I know, we do it. <laughs> we, can, we can eat organic or vegan or keto and still get sick. We can drive the speed limit and obey traffic laws perfectly and still get in car accidents. We can spend years building an impressive resume and it could all come crashing down in a moment. We can budget well and we can save wisely for the future and still fall into financial crisis that we did not see coming. These are good things to do, but the assumption that doing them will ensure a future that we desire is bad theological math. It doesn't add up like that. Wow, Pete's sabbatical really made him a negative person. <laughs> Maybe. Where have you bought into the delusion of self-sufficiency? This, this, this speaking from Jesus, this word from God, is an, is an invitation to hear from him. It's an invitation to, to be exposed. Don't be afraid of that. He loves you to show you a mirror into your own struggle. His invitation to not be anxious reveals our, our areas of delusion that are different for, for all of us. But he doesn't leave us there. He moves on. He moves on to correct us in a humble, tender way. He corrects us. Jesus corrects us with two phrases. Right in the heart of this passage, he says, do this. He says, Look at the birds, consider the lilies. He means in our time of struggle, in our time when we realize the true depth of our sin, that it's made us delusional. For the first time, we've realized, I have need. How far have I fallen from, from, from knowing and trusting in God that I realize that, that I have need for the first time? I realize I'm naked. I realize that I'm troubled. And God would say, who told you? Who told you you're that way? He means in our time of worry to direct our whole, our whole mind, our whole attitude to an object, to take our attention off of our, our trouble to reorient it on something else. Not the lilies, do you notice this? Not the lilies and not the, not the birds, but to the care provided to them. That's ultimately what he's saying. He says, look at the birds and consider the lilies. Not, don't just look at them and then that be the end of it, but consider the care that I give to them. How much more important are you to me than they? See, our perception is, is often inaccurate, and that's what Jesus is trying to correct. He's trying to tell us our feelings are not the most accurate guide to God's intentions and purposes in our life. I want to show you this picture. Uh, it may be hard to see on the screen up here, but this is a picture. I put it up here a couple reasons. This is where we stayed uh, for the month of June. Uh, a couple reasons. One, to brag. Uh, another, to, uh, <laughs> another to illustrate a point in this passage. Oh, thanks, Craig. This is a picture of just a couple hundred yards. We had a house uh, here, Shell Beach, for 30 days. And a couple hundred yards from our house was this beautiful cliff uh, looking off into the ocean. Uh, beautiful area, central coast of California. Um, and I remember going out there where I go and pray and think and read scripture. And I'd sit on a bench and I'd just look out into the ocean. And I'd say, this is an amazing place. What a beautiful place. But there's something that ruins it all. All that seaweed. All that gross seaweed is really, what a tragedy. This beautiful coastline covered in just floating, drifting sea trash. And I was like, someone's got to fix this. Someone's got to really make this right. Otherwise, uh, this beautiful coastline is going to be ruined. Okay, you can put the lights back up. Thanks. And then I walked away, kind of in my disgust, and I thought, oh, almost perfect. And then there was a plaque. And I'm the kind of guy, you know, there's two kinds of people in the world. Uh, one, the first kind stops at every plaque and reads it, 
and the other person just walks on and goes on with their life. Why well, stop at every plaque? Oh, look, history. And then I still read it. And so there's a plaque, and it talks about the seaweed. And it just says, this seaweed is not drifting seaweed. What you see is one of the most complex underwater forests in the world. I might go on. It's home to thousands of species of animals and algae that provide food for marine life uh, for generations and millennia, uh, provides uh, emulsifiers and thickening agents for food that we eat every single day. It provides ingredients for cosmetics and paint that we use every single day. And before you is one of the most beautiful and intricate uh, life sources on the planet. And I'm like, wow, how beautiful. From first looking at it and saying, what a bunch of garbage. Walking away saying, what a beautiful thing. Jesus wants to correct our perspective. And he says, I know you're struggling, and I know there's a mess in your life, and I know you, if it was up to you, you would change every bit of it. But look at the birds, and look at the lilies. They're not even working, and yet they're, they have everything they need. How much more do I care for you? He's correcting our perspective. He's saying, I'm doing something. Your perspective is wrong. Your feelings are not the most accurate guide of what God intends to do. Because in the midst of that, God is bringing about his purposes for you. If we had it our own way, we would never be uncomfortable. And that is why suffering is so discouraging. Is because we feel out of control. There's nothing that makes us feel more out of control than when we're uncomfortable, when we're suffering, when we're struggling, when we're anxious, when we're worried, when we're afraid. We would never let anything negative happen to us. That's why suffering, anxiety, and worry makes us feel hopeless and out of control. How much does God love us that he would allow suffering in order to bring about his plans? Look at what he did to his own son, Jesus. Well, if God loved me, he wouldn't allow suffering. Look at what he did to his son. He gave his son up to die. Don't say that he won't allow suffering if he loves you. In the midst of that suffering, he is doing something beautiful. To remind us that we're not forgotten, to remind us that he cares, to remind us that he is capable to bring about everything he's promised for you and for me. You see, Jesus goes on to correct, and then he goes on to assure. Finally, why don't we look at that? He goes on to assure us of his presence and care in our life. I'm comforted that Jesus, and, and, and really the Bible all throughout, uh, never treats suffering or worry or anxiety as if it doesn't exist. He, never come, he doesn't come to Adam and Eve, and, and, and they say, we, we hid because we were afraid, because we were naked. He doesn't say, you're not naked, you're fine, everything's okay, you have skin, that's all you need. He doesn't say that. He, he acknowledges, you were, you're naked. It's not as it should be. And I'm comforted that Jesus doesn't say, you don't, you don't need to worry about eating. You don't need to eat. You don't need clothes. You don't need a life. He doesn't dismiss them. He actually talks about it. He doesn't tell us how he will make those things better, but he doesn't ignore it either. He says, God knows you need these things, and he cares for you. God's relationship with us is, is never presented in an academic way. Don't you realize this? When we go through scripture, it's never presented in academic ways when we are struggling. Well, if you follow this formula and do these things, then, then you'll be where you should be. He doesn't do that. He presents himself as a relational God. He always communicates 
the truth of who he is and his character tied to a relationship that we have with Jesus. Whenever God leads us into something that he knows is difficult for us, he assures us and reassures us of his character and presence in our life. What Jesus wants for us to do is to consider to our greatest capacity possible what it would be like to be like those lilies and like those birds who have everything that they need. And, he sa- and then he says, do you have that picture in your mind? What it's like to, to be loved more than they? And then he says, okay, your heavenly father cares more about you than he does for them. If his invitation to not worry is meant to reveal our lack of proper perspective and misplaced desires, then this next step is meant to convince us of his sufficiency, of his love and his care in the midst of those struggles. Here, he validates our desires. He doesn't say, don't care about money, don't care about food, don't care about clothing and possessions or your very life. He says, I understand you care about these things, but it's possible that you look in these things for only what I can give to you. You're looking for the kind of peace and security and comfort in these horizontal things that only I can give to you. This summer I watched a a 30-minute documentary on the mystery of why zebras have stripes. Uh, I didn't have anything to do. You don't realize how I didn't have anything to do. I didn't have anything to do. Uh, I was bored. I watched a 30-minute documentary on zebras and why, why they have stripes. People don't know. It's really interesting. They, they, they've, they've studied this. They've studied this for, for years. Um, this, so they did tests. And, and so one, it was, uh, they thought maybe it's a cooling mechanism because there's this convection that happens between the color black and how it absorbs light and white and how it bounces off, light, uh, bounces off heat. And so there's this cooling convection that happens. And they think maybe they do it to cool, but they realized through some tests that that wasn't true. They're the same temperature no matter what color they were. Uh, and then they thought maybe, the, maybe as they're all herding together, all the zebras, it creates like this optical illusion and lions don't know how to get them, right? <laughs> these are real things, scientists. These are the ones running the world. And so they think maybe it confuses the lions and the lion's like, ah, you know? And then they realized, no, they still get eaten by lions. Um, and here's what they realized, actually. This is what they landed on. There's something they noticed after all these tests. They said, do you guys see any flies on the zebras? And like, that's weird. I don't see any flies. And they had, like, dark, you know, single-colored single uh, other animals and things like that out in the field covered in flies, and the zebras don't have any flies on them. And then they realized flies, the way their eyes work, can't land on stripes. So if you want to wear stripes, just, yeah, yeah. Some people have stripes, it's good. You're not going to have any, so here's my point. (laughs) Other than telling you how bored I was this summer. Could it be, could it be that the God of infinite wisdom created an animal to manifest black and white stripes for the sole purpose of their comfort to not have flies land on them. How much more does he care for you? How much more has he done for you? If he can orchestrate and create a complex system of DNA and pigmentation for the sole purpose, I just don't want to have flies land on them. How much more has he orchestrated your life and his care for you and your DNA and your circumstances in order to care for you. 
Jesus is speaking to us. And the answer is much more. Much more he cares for you. You are the crown of our Father's creation. More important than angels, more important than the beautiful earth that he has created, more majestic than the cosmos, it's you. It is you who he has poured his affection into. And there is no greater need that we have than for this kind of gospel assurance. There is no greater target of the devil than our gospel assurance. Think about it. The devil is not primarily interested in our annihilation. He's interested in our despair. He desires for us to give up hope. He desires for us to curse God, to doubt God's care in the midst of our struggles, to doubt God's goodness for us. But Jesus assures us that the God in our midst cares for us. He knows our struggles and is powerful enough to bring about his good plans for us in the midst of all of them. God never leads us into difficult situations only to abandon us. And the devil wants us to think that he does. I want you to consider who is giving us this kind of assurance. Who is it that is speaking? It's Jesus. It's a man on death row. If anyone has legitimate reason to worry about tomorrow, it's Jesus. He knows he's going to die. He knows he is going to suffer a gruesome death as an innocent man to bear the wrath of God for sin, to take the curse of sin upon himself. And he says, you don't need to worry about tomorrow. Because Jesus knows that his own victory over suffering is a guarantee of that our suffering will not last forever. Because he took our pain, our fear, our struggles, our failure to find peace through the self-sufficient life, and he takes it to the cross. Do you see what Jesus is offering us here? Not a guarantee of comfort, but a guarantee of his loving care, his provision, his oversight, and the future perfect restoration. He guarantees to us that what is, is not what will always be. There's an expiration date to our suffering. It takes courage to believe something like this. It takes faith to believe this. And this is the essence of saving faith, that even though we suffer, His grace is not as a cure for our suffering today, but it's a guarantee of our security in the unwavering love of God and the certainty of our one day total rescue from it all. The essence of saving faith is not the absence of struggle, but it is trust in a God who has the ability to hold us up. The cross teaches us that even though there there are times when we are weak, God is not. He remains faithful. The cross teaches us that, that, that God often does his greatest work in us when we are at our weakest. You may not be, you may be confused right now, but God is not. You may be troubled, but he is not. You may be worried or anxious, but he is not. You may feel that you are at the end of your rope, but he remains strong and committed to extending his grace to you. Our feelings about God, even in our greatest struggle, 
do not save us. Jesus saves us. Our hope does not rest in our ability to be strong in a time of weakness, to just bear through it. But it rests in his ability to bear us up, to save us, to rescue us. Jesus will never abandon us when we come to him with worried and anxious hearts. Take comfort, for he cares for you. Let's pray.